Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting Parsha podcast. It's still me, I'm Tzvi Hirschfield, and I am thrilled and honored to be with a relatively new Pardes faculty person. We are here with uh, Rabbi Raphael Polisuk. Not a rabbi yet. We're going to call you rabbi anyways. For this <laughs> podcast, you're a rabbi, and uh, we're very excited. He is uh, starting to teach at Pardes this year, and we're thrilled to have him. Welcome, Raphael. Thank you so much, Tzvi. It's an honor being here. You see that, everyone? It's an honor to be here, I hope. So we are up to Parshat Bo, an exciting parsha in that it is an incredible weaving of both narrative and law that I would say that up until now, we really haven't had. We've really been engaging in narrative, and then suddenly we have a legal text in front of us, and the Parsha, because of that, this interplay with narrative and law makes it both, I think, very interesting, but also very challenging to figure out where these things start and where they end and how to follow the thread. So, uh, Rafael, if you could help walk us through what catches your eye about the structure and what's happening here. Well, so... We've been doing the whole beginning of Exodus, the things we remember from the Agadah, the Esher Makot, and this would be the climax of the story. We were reaching Makat Bechorot. Makat Bechorot is the crescendo of our story. The slaying of the firstborn for those who uh, don't have the Hebrew. Exactly. So in this parasha, we reach the moment of Makat Bechorot, the killing of the firstborn, and this is supposed to be like the highest point of our story. This is supposed to be our climax, and it gets narrated in a way that is far from being taken for granted. The story of the Exodus, as narrated, as we remember it from the Agada, the Ten Plagues, the Esamakot, are the body of our parsha. But then when we reach its end, where it's supposed to be the classical climax of a story, the story changes. As you said, Allah becomes very prominent there. So we're about to reach Makat Bechorot, the killing of the firstborn, and then Hashem has some instructions about how to do the Passover. But one can explain that part as being, okay, we're explaining that Pesach. But then it becomes quite clear, yes, there is a zoom-out moment that we actually begin to speak about This day shall be for all your generations as remembrance. It's not ta- only talking about Allah, it's encapsulating it in memory in a way that maybe uh, from the world of cinematography we would call the breaching of the four falls. Suddenly, we're not anymore in a story that happened in the past. It's almost a timeless story. Well, it's very interesting what you're pointing out, that the story sort of leaves this narrative of events that they're unfolding, and suddenly it's like stops and says, by the way, in the future, when you're reading this, understand these are the things you should remember or hold on to, even though they haven't happened yet in a way. We haven't reached the end. We haven't left Egypt, and already the text is stopping this exciting story to say, oh, and by the way, when you're eventually out, you should remember the following. Exactly. And I think that this calls to memory the concept that, again, it will become very prominent later in Torah and in all Jewish thought and all Western thought, the remembrance of the leaving of Egypt, meaning Torah... When it narrates the leaving of Egypt, it already tells us this is not an event in the past. It's an event in memory, and it's an event in Alakha. And Alakha, of course, becomes action, becomes meaning. These events should be eternalized in a way that is not merely the remembrance of history, but actually 
putting something into action. So it's an interesting question because there are a lot of other what we will call central events, whether it's the binding of Isaac or the sending away of Ishmael or Joseph forgiving his brothers. And in those examples, the Torah doesn't pause to tell us uh, to remember. The camera doesn't move out of the fourth wall as you're describing. So I guess it invites the question, why now in this moment is this Torah so concerned that even pauses its own narrative to tell us to remember. I think that the example of the binding of Isaac and also the example of the fight in Jacob and the angel a few parshat ago, we do see Torah somewhat doing a zoom out, but it doesn't do that much of a zoom out. For example, in the binding of Isaac, we do have the question of Har Hashem yes, that shall be told in this day, meaning in this future that we the readers understand where is it because we are there. but. Really, this great zoom out actually happens only in the time. And I think that for the Torah, it's almost obvious why. Because it becomes a thing of identity. We are the people that left me time. It's almost, yes, when Hashem presents himself in Ma'amad al-Sinai, in a few parashot, yes, he won't say, I'm Hashem who created the world. He will say, Anochi Hashem Elohecha asher I'm the God God that took you out of Egypt. Exactly. Yeah. This becomes not only a defining event for us as Jewish people, but also almost how we define God. Well, you're telling us basically that this is not just a matter of remembering an historical event, even a very important historical event, but the act of remembering this itself is meant to create a certain type of identity for us. So help us get inside. What does it mean to be a person where the Torah sees that person who remembers God taking us out of Egypt? How would that manifest beyond just having this passive awareness? Oh yeah, that happened like other things happened. So as I said, the first way the Torah does it is encapsulating it in halacha, meaning in action. And it's very clear in later mitzvot that are narrated as zecher litziat mitzrayim, that are told as to be a remembrance of the leaving of Egypt, that this memory isn't only a memory of an important historical event, but it is about a certain social missions. So for example, when the book of Dvarim tells us about the mitzvah of keeping Shabbat, it actually says, Yes, this is for your son, but also for your servants and handmaids to be able to rest. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Yes, and Hashem took you out of there in a mighty arm. And therefore, I command you to do the Shabbat. We, uh, we don't read those verses that much. They're not in our Kiddush. They're not right. uh, in our normal prayer book. I myself do do the Shabbat morning Kiddush on those verses uh, to wow, remember. Wow, radical. Very radical, everyone. If you're ever at Raphael's house for a Shabbat morning Kiddush, understand there might be some different practices going exactly. on. Exactly. Because like, actually, what the, those verses are telling us that keeping Shabbat, we focus that very much in the first verse. Shamor et Yom Shabbat. Keep the day of the Sabbath. But what is keeping the day of the Sabbath according to those verses themselves? It is to create a Shabbat, to make all different parts of society, even non-Jewish parts of society, the gear there, the stranger that is amongst you, to rest. Is to create this equalizing moment in society. Again, we all know how revolutionary the idea of Shabbat was for the society back then. And even today, the people are completely bound to work. And this is this very Martin Luther King idea of leaving Egypt, of seeing oppression, seeing oppressed people, and knowing that we, as Jews that were there, have this job uh, of fixing it, this so work the, of tikkun olam. The memory of our slavery, it's not just a passive or even a shared memory. It's not just a shared family story. But you're saying the Torah is explicit that by remembering, by understanding where I come from, 
that's going to reflect. I need to create rest because I remember what it's like to be a person who doesn't have control over his own time and doesn't have control over his own labor. And therefore, the Shabbat I create can be created in a certain way only if I remember what it's like to be a slave in Egypt. Yes, it's even much more than that. Like Torah says to you that Shabbat is not but that. Shabbat is that moment of creating rest for others. Like you also rest in Shabbat. That's very nice of you. But this classic way of seeing Shabbat that we rest because God rests is not emphasized there at all. It's almost like pushed aside. I'm doing Shabbat for others, for those that wouldn't have Shabbat without me actually as, again, if they're speaking about slave ownership, like me being the responsible over them. And it calls again to this more open memory of uh, almost commanding memory of the leaving of Egypt or to create new exoduses. Or, or the being in Egypt, right? That the exodus reminds me that I was there. I'm assuming that the example of caring for the stranger and the Torah making that explicit is yeah. also in line with what you're saying, which I guess, well, I'd like to hear you talk about that. The difference between doing something that's ethically right because the idea of it is correct and being motivated to do it because it comes from a place of personal experience. I think that in a sense, of course, there is this notion of doing the right for its right. There are many mitzvot that aren't explicit because we left Egypt or because any other event in our history. But I think that specifically, Torah has this idea, it's stressed in the prophets, that society is in struggles. We have struggles between different classes and it's not only a very modern idea. The call of the oppressed is a theme in biblical literature uh, in general. And I think that basically what Yetziat time in this level is supposed to remind us that this is not only a very nice moral thing to do, this is part of who you are. Your essence is to be those who, as the prophets say, will call uh, liberty for the oppressed and so forth. I guess the Torah has to command it because maybe we don't really want to remember being oppressed. Maybe painful, difficult memories or uh, bad background, so to speak, to remember yourself as a slave and not as a king or as a powerful person, I guess. Maybe there's a natural resistance to that that we have to actively overcome through this reminder of remembering. Yes, and uh, we want to forget our bad past. If Torah would invent a story, like if the story of the Exodus is completely a, a literary narrative, as some have suggested uh, in more critical circles, I don't know. I would invent me a noble, uh, a noble beginning that we were all sons of kings and uh, we were very wealthy. And maybe there was some problem in the middle because we're not anymore there. But like, we would invent a noble beginning and. I think that also connects us to another message that is very much prominent in Jewish thought about what is remembering Yitzhak Mitzvah. I mean, it actually also calls us to a different uh, relationship with God, with reality itself. The most explicit about this is the Ramban on our parasham, that he actually asks the question that we began with, the question, why? Why remembering Yitzhak Mitzvah all the time? Why is it there all the time? Why does God present himself this way, the one who delivered you from Egypt? And I think that Part of what moves Ramban in his answer that we will talk about shortly is about this. How do I perceive the world? Is the world before and after Yetziat Mitzrayim the same? And I think that Ramban's answer is very much no. That Torah is intending us to understand that this calls us for a radical shift in how we perceive the world. And Ramban basically says that we have the paradigm of imagining God either as active in reality, doing miracles, changing the world, uh, this very, I don't know, simplistic view of providence, or imagining him as being absent from the world. 
it's a binary for us. Right. Either God is a supernatural being who's invested in the world, is making things happen all the time, or this deistic or very cold, I shouldn't say cold, that's a little judgmental, but a sort of rational, even Aristotelian, a God that maybe in some way caused creation to come into being, but is not really around and doesn't hear our prayers, and it wouldn't make even sense any to pray to him. Yes, exactly. So the Ramban actually says that Yitzhak Mitzrayim, miracles in general, are an anomaly. They're not regular providence. That's his main chiddush, that providence is this life that we live, that we are called to see God in our whole life, in what he calls nisim hanistarim, the hidden miracles. Right. She'ein hanisim hagluyim, eila lelamed al hanisim hanistarim. Beautiful. So I'll help you translate that. The goal of these obvious nature-changing miracles are there to teach us or to let us know that even the things that we think are just happening because that's how things happen, divine providence is happening there as well. Exactly. And again, the times we are in, life in general, I think it's uh, very interesting to see how Torah meets life and how life meets Torah, but especially in the times we are, I think that this message is both a call, but also a challenge. Yeah, I don't know, like most of us, I'm very much stuck to the news, looking for what's happening here and there, and trying to listen to as much commentators as possible. And uh, I don't know, I myself have the tendency, I think as most of us, to see our world as led by political interests, uh, by political entities, or... A human-led world, basically. No, and from this very cold, almost heartless, economical-driven things, and... This Ramban actually says, no, look for God there. Look for God in what's happening, even if it's not easy. Yeah, as I say, because it leaves a lot of us in a very painful choice. Either we say that uh, God is not involved, in which case, like you're saying, we feel ourselves in living in a cold, heartless, chaotic, even meaningless world. Or we say God is involved in everything, but then we're left with all those questions. Well, if God is involved, why did this happen? And why did that happen? Why did God allow this? And why did God make this happen? And what am I supposed to learn from that? And so it is a hard choice, I think, for a lot of us, especially today, to feel that space. But you're saying the Ramban is telling us every time we remember the open miracles of Egypt, it is there to put the challenge in front of us to strive to see God's hand in the day-to-day, in a world that he's not obviously there, but he's behind the scenes. Yes, in that way, I think that the both messages connect, in a sense, because making God there is not making only God as an idea there. God, especially if we imagine him, again, as the Ramban is speaking about intervening in reality, driving reality, God becomes a person. God becomes a person with motives, with moral motives. And that connects us, again, to the idea why the Exodus happened in the beginning. When I think about the Exodus every day, and again, try to find God, even in the hidden miracles, I first and foremost am imagining a world led by a God, the same God that took people out of Egypt, that is trying to make this world a better place, even though I might not always understand. Not every day is a day where actually slaves get out of their oppressors and amazing. There are some days, like October 7, that I don't know where they fit in this process of making the world a better place. But when I call Hashem, He who led us out of the land of Egypt, I'm basically saying, this is the way the world is led. The world is leading to a better place, even if I don't understand that. Yeah, there's an element there of God wants a good world. God is acting, I guess, in certain ways, most of the ways we can't understand, but is pushing us also to be partners with him then in creating a good world, that there is a uh, desired outcome. And I would say these days, a belief in a 
positive outcome, the light at the end of the tunnel that is at least possible knowing that God had a purpose in putting all this into action. Beautiful. What else? Tell me something else you like about uh, Yitziat Mitzrayim. So there's a call to action. Uh, there's theology. What about this idea? Let me run by that I often think about this sense of a shared historical past that connects us. These days, in particular, divisions among the Jewish people, I feel like I'm looking at them all the time. I'm hearing about them all the time. I'm constantly confronted with secular and religious, uh, wealthy and poor, Haredim, right? The ultra-Orthodox and everybody else, and the divisions that are happening also across political divides and right and left and everything else. And I'm wondering if there's a role in this shared narrative, this shared origin that maybe reminds us we all come from the same place, and we're all trying to get to a shared place. We're coming out of Egypt, and we're heading towards the promised land. That's the narrative that we're remembering. And I'm wondering, do you think like that's meant to help us sort of overcome the divisions between us? I think that one of the ideas that is very compelling to me uh, in the Seder night that I, every year I remind myself of is the question, why don't we drink the fifth cup? The four cups are uh, meant to represent the four different aspects that Hashem tells us he will take us out of Egypt, he will save us. But there is, if you actually read the verse, it's talk about Veheveti, and I shall bring you to the land I promised you. Yes, that is strangely absent from the narrative in our Haggadah. Exactly. For me, part of the thing there is that it actually didn't happen yet. Even though we eventually, after 40 years in the desert, we reached there, it's very clear, even from the biblical narrative itself, that this wasn't it. Like we left Egypt, were bigger, meaning that Zohar even says that if Moshe wouldn't do his sin or if the golden calf wouldn't be made, so maybe Mashiach would come immediately because the thing we're aiming towards being brought to wasn't achieved there. That's why we can't celebrate it. We can't drink the fifth cup as if it never happened. never really arrived. We never really arrived. And that for me is what's very important here because unfortunately, we know that a shared past is not enough. We need a shared goal. And I think that that is the more uniting thing happening here. Is not only saying, oh, we should love each other because all back then we had this like lineage and we're genetically connected. Like family, you don't choose. That's a saying that I hate very much because, okay, you don't choose, but I can, I don't know. Uh, we all I can have, still not like them. Yeah, no, I can't also dislike them. Yes, yeah. of course, we all have, uh, all families have those problems within it. And uh, I think that it creates not only a destiny of like, oh, okay, we are in this boat together because <laughs> that's history. No, we are steering towards a future. We're together in this together. Like, again, it seems in the far past, but everyone was talking around the whole protest movement that was here in Israel that when Passover came and everyone sat around the same Seder table, and how was it for people from different sides of the political spectrum to sit in this table or for the past, I don't know, 75 years sitting in the same table where you have in the same family people that are Haredim and Chilonim, the, the divisions are crumbling, but yet there is a problem in uh, Israeli society and Jewish society as a whole meets this wall a lot of times that, okay, we have a shared past, we have a shared narrative about the past, a canon, a like an ancient canon and a new canon, like things that unite as a culture, but do we actually <laughs> have a common goal. Yeah, you're actually asking a very challenging and provocative question, right? This idea we can talk about unity all we want and even shared suffering, right? And uh, in moments of shared suffering, we feel very connected to each other. But the point that you're making is that there's more needed. We have to have a shared future, a shared vision of the future we want to build with one another. And without that, 
the unity that comes is, if I understand you correctly, the unity that comes from shared suffering or shared difficulty, it won't hold. We still have to figure out where we want to arrive together. And I hear you're saying that that's a challenge that the memory of leaving Egypt is telling us, because it's not only where we left, but you're saying, okay, but where do we want to get to? We didn't leave just to leave. We're out. But most of the Torah is actually not about the leaving. It's about the attempt to arrive and what the arrival should look like. So that's both inspiring and scary and challenging all at the same time. So I guess uh, I want to close. I have a few more minutes with you. So what personally inspires you? Where's your personal takeaway in this? When you remind yourself twice a day, at least, that you left Egypt, that God took you out of Egypt by reciting that third paragraph of the Shema, which I know that you say, I'm looking at you and I can see that you say it. (laughs) What do you want your takeaway to be? I think everything together, past, present, and future. Narrative, action, and goal. Try to create a reality uh, where I live my life focused in this almost timeless existence of the Jewish people. I think that when I actually come to that point, I actually try to unite those different aspects. Try to stop thinking about only present, only past, or only future. Try to create a deeper, perhaps timeless existence as a Jewish person, as a... as if connecting my deeds and my thoughts and my aspirations for my personal future and the future of our nation and our world, perhaps even, with this bigger narrative, this bigger aspirations. Um, that sounds very hard. Very hard. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, my takeaway from what you're sharing with us, and I think it's really appropriate for today. First, I think you're asking a very important question in general that we should all be mindful of when we study Torah is why does the Torah want to tell me this? Uh, as opposed to just reading through, and especially because we've seen it so many times before, we know it's there on the page. And I think you're reminding us, take a step back and ask yourself, why is the Torah telling me this now? And why does it tell me so many times? And to really engage that question, I think overall is very helpful. But I also hear you saying uh, another element that is also very provocative and challenging, that the historical past is not there just to tell us about the historical past. Uh, There is a call towards building a future and how we want the Jewish people, and individually, how we want to be in the world, see the world, appreciate the world, connect to God, behave in a certain way. And uh, it's not enough, really, especially leaving Egypt, the Seder, is such like an easy go-to. Oh, we all go to a Seder. We all say these same things. Isn't that lovely? We're all connected. And here, Raphael, you are telling us, well, if that's all you're getting, you're not getting it, because the Haveti part, the where are we getting to, where do we want to go to, that question has to be on the table even though we know we're going to give different answers, contradictory answers to one another, and it's going to surface a lot of these tensions. But we have to have the trust. This is my takeaway from you, that through the conversation, through the chavruta about what that looks like, we actually have to have a certain emunah that we will arrive together, uh, and that it's possible and it can happen, but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of responsibility. If we already spoke so much about the Seder today, I think that that's what's so beautiful about the traditional outburst in the end of the Seder, because we know that the halachical parts of the Seder end more or less in the end of the Halal. Right. But then, in a non-halachical fashion, Jewish tradition, like, invites us to shout there, Leshana haba Yerushalayim. Not everyone is awake at that point. Right. But it's very meaningful, because, like, okay, we're not speaking about the past. The natural reaction for what we just did, for thanking Hashem for the past or about the present, because we are currently 
uh, still Bnei Khorim, Baruch Hashem, since that moment, it does lead us to think about a future, about Yerushalayim Abnuya, about this next year that will be there, Bezrat Hashem. I would say even more think about, but think about it with optimism and hope. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those of you listening right now, we're taping this a few weeks before you hear it. So uh, I know I'm speaking for both of us when I share our profound hope and prayer that by the time you're listening to this, we will have peace and we will have safety and security and the hostages will be returned to their families and the world will look much different. That's our hope and our prayer. Mm-hmm. But even if, God forbid, it's not there in those few weeks, then one essential takeaway is, and this is what I'm hearing from you, and I, I have to do so much work on this for myself, is God taking us out of Egypt also has to remind us of a certain optimism, that even when things look so hard, so difficult for ourselves personally, for the Jewish people, when we have loved ones, as both of us do, fighting in Azo right now and in danger, maintaining a sense of optimism, a belief about a positive future, I feel like it's so essential right now, and I feel like you're challenging us to do it. Uh, and you're saying this is part of our story we're trying to work on. So uh, we're going to have to try to accept that challenge that you put out for us, Rafael. I accept it too. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining us. It's a privilege learning with you today, and we invite all of you to, uh, first of all, have a wonderful Shabbat, and uh, join us again next week. Thank you, Rafael. Thank you, too. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.